Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. BLACH.com, Block Construction, together building greatness. Artist Works, bluegrass players can learn from internationally recognized artists Tony Trishka, Mike Marshall, and Brian Sutton, and more at artistworks.com bluegrass. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. On today's California Report magazine, we hear how everything changed for one family the day the police knocked on their door more than 75 years ago. Freedom isn't free. And don't take your freedom for granted. You think it can't happen today? Ha! You kidding me? And we learn about a superhero fantasy that's changing the way some African Americans in Oakland see their history on the big screen. Black existence in America is science fiction. Aliens came to your land, abducted you, stole your God, stole your music, stole your language. Plus a spoken word artist who took a selfie, had an epiphany, and started a movement. Maybe we need a place where we're allowed to feel unapologetically powerful and beautiful in our bodies. Stories about changing identities and taking back power. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Next week marks the anniversary of a decision that changed life for tens of thousands of Californians. Back in February 1942, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, giving the okay to the internment of Japanese Americans. But they weren't the only ones the government considered suspicious during World War II. You may not know that 50,000 Italian Americans in California were deemed enemy aliens. Reporter Carrie Spivak brings us the story of the Bronzini family. They had a pretty good life in the Bay Area until the government targeted them, and they nearly lost everything. Clara and Guido Bronzini came to the United States from a town near Pisa, Italy in the late 1920s. World War I had devastated Italy. There were no crops, no jobs, no future. And the fascists were gaining power. Their son, Al, remembers his mother telling him fascists came to her house when she was a teenager. And my grandfather, her father, he refused to fly the fascist flag. And so uh, they tortured my grandfather. Clara and Guido left Italy as soon as they could, 
They settled in an Italian community in Oakland. Guido opened a fruit market called the Banana Depot. He worked hard and earned a good income. Soon they bought a house, a refrigerator to replace the icebox, a brand new four-door Pontiac, and finally, a top-of-the-line radio. Beauty, clarity, pure, true, undistorted tone. Philco Balanced Unit Radio. It could receive uh, stations from overseas, and I can remember my dad playing beautiful. He loved beautiful. Uh, he loved opera music, and life was good. Life was better than than they could have ever dreamed possible. Mama, quel vino Life was so good that Clara and Guido forgot about finishing the paperwork for their citizenship. It didn't seem necessary. Italy and the United States had a great relationship. But that started to change in 1939, when Italy and Nazi Germany joined forces. Al's mom was especially torn between her love for Italy and for her new home in America. She cried. She cried her eyes out. She just couldn't believe what was happening. And the worst was yet to come. It came in February of 1942, just two months after the United States entered the war. Al is 88 now, but as we sit in his dining room, he says it feels like only yesterday when he was 13, having supper with his family, the night two policemen came to their front door. They said, Mr. Bronzini, we have to search your house. You are on the enemy alien list. Clara and Guido were now two of 50,000 Italian immigrants in California who were designated enemy aliens. They searched the house, found nothing. So they said, we have to take your Philco radio. Even flashlights, cameras, and shortwave radios were considered contraband. And my mother would have no part of it. She pleaded with the police, do not, please do not take my radio. And as she was tugging and pleading and crying on the board of hysteria, her big, beautiful Philco radio, they carried it out the front door. The government imposed a curfew and placed travel restrictions on anyone labeled an enemy alien. Al's parents couldn't go more than five miles from home without a permit. They had to join a nationwide registry and provide photos and personal information. They had to go to the library and have their little alien book stamped every Friday. If they violated these restrictions, they would be arrested, imprisoned by armed guards, and held behind barbed wire in local detention centers. Then came Executive Order 9066, which created prohibited zones, Areas around strategic facilities like the coast and oil fields. 120,000 Japanese Americans would be removed to internment camps further inland. Thousands of Italian immigrants were forced from their homes in the Bay Area, Santa Cruz, Monterey, Los Angeles, and all the coastal areas between. The Bronzinis could keep their home, but the family's fruit market was in one of those zones. My father received a notice that his beloved Banana Depot was off limits to him. Without an income from the Banana Depot, 
Guido took work where he could find it. But the stigma of being an enemy alien followed him. A little bit of chatter and bingo, that guy's an enemy alien, he's out of here. For Al's mother, the growing similarities between the life she escaped in Italy and the new restrictions in America became overwhelming. She used to say in, in Italian, Non abbiamo fatto niente a nessuno. We have done nothing to no one. Why is this happening? It got so bad that she suffered a mental breakdown and was admitted into a hospital. This is not a crazy woman. This is a woman who has been stripped of her dignity, and she just wasn't handling it. Al remembers one Sunday going to visit her with his father and brother. Carrie, I still have trouble with this one. She was sitting on her bed in a straitjacket. Straitjacket. Eight months later, Columbus Day, 1942, President Roosevelt lifted the restrictions on Italian enemy aliens citing their loyalty to America. We are celebrating today the exploit of a bold and adventurous Italian, Christopher Columbus, who with the aid of Spain opened up a new world where freedom and tolerance and respect for human rights and dignity provided an asylum for the oppressed of the old world. Historians believe Roosevelt needed the support of Italian-Americans for the invasion of Italy. In the Bronzini family, Clara slowly recuperated. Guido reopened the Banana Depot, the family fruit market. He and Clara immediately enrolled in classes and became naturalized citizens before the war ended. Al says his parents never again talked about their time as enemy aliens. What good would it be to talk about it? What are you going to do, complain? To who? If they didn't listen then, they're going to listen now? The United States government wouldn't talk about it either. Information about Italian enemy aliens was confidential until 2001, when a grassroots effort got Congress to pass legislation, making these wartime injustices public. A few years after that, the state of California apologized. As for an apology from the federal government, United States Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren recently sponsored legislation that would formally apologize and fund education about the treatment of Italian-Americans during World War II. Al Bronzini says he doesn't blame the government for what happened to his mother and father. He was a good man. He was a good man. He suffered a lot. And so did my mother. And so did many others. But freedom isn't free. And don't take your freedom for granted. You think it can't happen today? Ha! You kidding me? It's a story, he says, that we need to keep telling. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Spivak. That need to tell stories about the past, to remember our painful history in order to move forward, it's a powerful impulse and an important one. But what about storytelling that moves beyond confronting pain and a history of repression? What about envisioning a future in which people who've experienced discrimination are powerful and free? You get to decide what kind of king you are going to be. That's a trailer for the brand new action movie Black Panther about an African warrior who transforms into a superhero and a futuristic black nation that's the most high-tech place on Earth. Part of the film's plot unfolds in Oakland. The director of the movie, Ryan Coogler, grew up in Oakland. He shot his breakthrough film, Fruitvale Station, there. 
But Black Panther is connected to Oakland in even deeper ways. Oakland is, after all, the birthplace of the actual Black Panther Party. KQED's Sandhya Dirks asks, other than a name, what do the movie and the movement have in common? They were basically twins at birth, if not in conception. I think it's June 1966, maybe, somewhere on there. Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, two white Jewish guys, wanted to create a superhero. So this is the middle of the civil rights movement, or ramping up in the civil rights movement, and they created a character called Black Panther that was, you know, and sometimes called Black Jaguar, and sometimes called Coal Tiger, and all these other things. So this, you know, Black Panther, by about three months, predates the announcement of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Sean Taylor is standing in front of Oakland's Grand Lake Movie Theater. The historic Grand Lake Theater. Where Black Panther has the prime spot on the marquee. Taylor is a co-founder of the Black Comics Arts Festival. He says it's a sort of serendipity that Black Panther was the name given to both a black Marvel superhero and a movement for black liberation in the same year. It wasn't a connection welcomed by Marvel. So they tried to change it because they didn't want yeah, it to be... associated with, with the Black Panther Party. And it didn't work? No. Why do you think that was? I mean, I think ideas are bigger than us. And ideas grow. As the Black Panther comic was written over decades, generations of comic book writers came to define the mythic universe of T'Challa, the Black Panther, and the country he came from, Wakanda. It is a country in Africa that has never been conquered by any European powers or anyone else. It's the home of the metal vibranium, which Captain America's uh, shield is made out of, and it is the most technologically advanced country in the world. It's not post-colonial or pre-colonial. It exists in a timeline where colonization never happened, which means it's a place where black people rule themselves. Self-rule, historically a radical concept for people of color in America. A concept the Black Panther Party also fought for, right here in Oakland. Here's Black Panther leader Huey Newton in the early 70s. If the police were to withdraw from the community and the black community control its own uh, police institution as well as all the other institutions within our community, uh, we feel that the law and order would exist. I am the daughter of a Black Panther, a real Black Panther. That's Malkia Cyril, the founder of the Center for Media Justice. Cyril already has tickets to see the movie three times this weekend alone. I'm probably going to end up seeing it about 17 times. That's, that's my safe estimate. Because representation matters. Black heroes matter. There's this video going around social media right now. Three black men standing around a Black Panther movie poster. Well, hugging it, really. And the conclusion that we have all come to is that this is what white people get to feel all the time. All the time! All the time! Since the beginning of cinema, you get to feel empowered this. like this and represented. This? This is what y'all feel like all the time? I would love this country, too. This idea of black heroes, this idea of a black liberation army, an army of warriors ready to fight, this is both literal and figurative. And that's the heart of Afrofuturism. Quick history lesson. Afrofuturism was coined in 1993 to define an artistic movement where images of ancient Africa intersect with the fantastic. It's also digging into the past, bringing it forward, imagining the impossible. Using science fiction. Black existence in America is science fiction. Aliens came to your land, abducted you, 
stole your gods, stole your music, stole your language, and dropped you off into a new alien land with new fauna, new flora, new everything. So black experience is science fiction. That's Sean Taylor again. He says to imagine a world outside colonialism, to imagine black warriors, is revolutionary. It was revolutionary when the Black Panther Party did it, and it's revolutionary in a blockbuster Marvel movie. Storytelling as a weapon of resistance. I want to see what an Arab-American story is without white supremacy involved, without having me labeled a terrorist. I want to see that story. I want to see a woman's story not having to contend with misogyny. I want to see a queer story not having to contend with homophobia. Like, when you do these type of, like, cultural speculations, you get such beautiful and rich stories without having to always have that, that double consciousness involved. But Taylor knows the world we live in is far away from Wakanda. In Wakanda, technology elevates everybody. Here, it's polarizing people financially. Yeah, so Oakland, I mean, I hate to say it, it's kind of like the anti-Wakanda a little bit. Because technology here... It's fueling the displacement of the black population. That's one reason why activist Malkia Cyril says seeing the film isn't enough. At screening, Cyril will also be talking about Black Panthers who Cyril says are to this day wrongly imprisoned because they were targeted by the FBI. About the FBI's new target, so-called black identity extremists. Ryan Coogler's job was to make this amazing film, and he did that. He did his job. He was on his job, right? Now it's time for us to be on our job. To turn, Cyril says, from the movie to the movement. For The California Report, I'm Sunday Dirks. Reframing how our stories are told may start with the way we talk about ourselves, even how we talk about our own bodies. The body is not an apology. Do not present the body as communion, confession. Do not ask for it to be pardoned as criminal. The body is not a crime, is not a gun, is not a spill to be contained, is not a lost set of keys, a wrong number dialed. It is not the orange burst of blood to shame white dresses. The body is unapologetic and proud. Those are just a few words that come to mind when you hear Bay Area spoken word artist and activist Sonia Renee Taylor perform, especially when she talks about self-image and body shame. The body is not soil, is not filth to be forgiven. The body is not an apology. She's got a new book out called The Body is Not an Apology. Hey there, Sonia. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I want to start with a moment in your book where you have kind of an epiphany. Mm. Um, You took a picture of yourself and you waited about six months with that picture on your phone before you did anything with it. Describe the selfie for us. So, yes, it's me preparing for an event and I'm wearing a black corset. And so it's kind of me and my skivvies. Um, So I posted the photo. I said, in this photo, I'm 230 pounds. I have a really bad tattoo and stretch marks, and I feel beautiful in my body. Post a photo where you feel beautiful and powerful in your body. Uh, And the next morning, like 30 people had tagged me in photos. And I was like, this is awesome. Maybe we need a place where we're allowed to celebrate ourselves. Maybe we need a place where we're allowed to feel unapologetically powerful and beautiful in our bodies. Um, And I just kind of happened to have a poem already named Uh, called The Body is Not an Apology. The poem that I like to say started the movement. (laughs) Let's talk about body shame, because it's a concept that you explore a lot in the book. And you talk about how it really starts in childhood, you know, and it got me thinking about when I was a kid, you know, my eyebrows grow together over my nose. 
uh, body hair is like the part of me. My dad's from India. That's the part of me that we're hairy people, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I began to feel that shame very early on about having hair on my face or mm-hmm. on my arms. For you, where did that body shame begin in childhood? I was teased unmercifully uh, as a little girl because I developed traction alopecia in third grade, which is uh, permanent hair damage um, Mm. and hair balding from stress on the hair follicles. Um, And it was from my mother braiding my hair very, very tightly. And that um, made me a target. I was already living in a world that told me that my hair was not okay. That shame really just kind of baked in the notion that I was inherently flawed. And so I really started wearing weaves and wigs for decades, um, probably from the time I was in seventh grade until about five years ago, six years ago. And now you're wearing your head in full splendor. Yes, <laughs> my fantastically bald head, uh, which came about as a result of the work of The Body's Not an Apology about six months after I'd started the Facebook page. And one day I woke up and I was like, I am not in integrity in this movement. I wake up every day and tell people to love themselves unapologetically, and I won't leave my bedroom without a wig. I won't go to the grocery store. I've had lovers who have never seen me without a wig on. Um, and I can't actually do what it is I'm called to do with this thing, whatever it is, um, if I'm still acting in opposition to it. What advice do you have as a as a first step? I mean, it's so overwhelming for people who've lived their life with self-hatred and, you know, without feeling like they've got that radical self-love for whatever body they have. Mm -hmm. How do you start? I want people to ask themselves some questions. And one of the key questions that I think helps us begin the journey is what I like to say is whose agenda is my self-hate? We think that we came up with these ideas about, (laughs) about all the ways that our bodies are wrong. We think that like, oh, I just, hate my thighs because I hate my thighs or I just want to bleach my skin because I just want to bleach my skin. And we haven't interrogated who gave us the message. We can't talk about um, things like the Me Too movement without talking about the ways in which society says women's bodies should be treated, right? The messages that we give men about what to expect from a woman's body and time and energy, right? And so we have to start interrogating all of the messages that we've received about bodies and our interactions with our own bodies and in our interactions with other people's bodies. There's some really rich learning um, and powerful de-indoctrinations that we get to do when we start asking those questions. Sonia Renee Taylor is the author of The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love. On this week's show, we've been talking about life-changing moments, radical transformations. Well, if you're a parent, you know that the moment when you take on the responsibility of caring for a child can be the most transformative moment of your life. We hear a lot about how that affects moms, but what about dads? KQED's Peter Arcuni was a stay-at-home dad for a year and brings us this reflection. A slide, sandbox, swings, discarded snacks and pigeons, children running laughing, a skinned knee lost toy, tears. This is my domain. Whee! 
a little girl and her scooter. What's your name? Amy. And how old are you? Two. And are you having fun? Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. I live for these moments here at the playground, but it wasn't always this easy. I remember that first day my wife went back to work, like being thrown out into the wilderness. The books were all birthing and breastfeeding. The class is called Mommy and Me. Christian Johnson, a middle school science teacher and father of Gemma, describes his experience. I was definitely walking around like a deer in the headlights. I think I just walked probably half the city strolling the baby because that was what I knew would keep her calm. Christian and I met in the sandbox, two dads in a sea of moms and nannies. I've been looking for another stay-at-home dad to connect with, so I made my move. Here's how he remembers it. It was pretty much instant, like, oh, there, hey, there's another dad. And then it was like, hey, yeah, around tomorrow, I'm around tomorrow, let's hang out. Bromance aside, I asked Christian what the eight months he'd spent at home with his daughter meant to him. On the level of, you know, the most important things that I've done in my life, it is the most important thing that I've done. I would never take that time back. We kicked around what it means to be a father in today's society. Certainly more dads are playing an active role with their kids compared to our parents' generation. But it still wasn't the norm to see a dad rolling around the sandbox on a weekday. Can I But what is normal for a dad today? Peter Lippman always knew he wanted to be a father. He's my friend and the hardest working dad I know. A 54-year-old single father of twins, Daniel and Ava, age two. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? There's a few things you should know about Peter. Two weeks before I spoke with him, he fell down a flight of stairs in front of his house carrying a stroller. All of a sudden, I felt like I was rolling and I was feeling my head hit against metal and wood. The fall broke his arm and he needed 25 stitches in his face. Luckily, the neighbor saw the whole thing and called 911. Then Peter got a stomach bug. His sister-in-law, Donna, who was flying in from Florida, arrived just in time. She arrived at... Puke 30? <laughs> she arrived at 11... 11... 11.30 in the evening on Saturday and my stomach virus started at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. So... But Peter insists the challenges he faces are the same as any other parent, just trying to do their best. The harder part has been feeling judged. It's like I'm that person. I'm the single guy. I mean, the single gay guy, the single older gay guy. I mean, let's put more and more labels on it. Peter eventually found his people, just everyday parents. They bonded over their kids or art, or in our case, rock and roll. But things still happen, like when a nanny walked across a playground to wipe his daughter's nose right in front of him or when people speculate about how he got his kids. I tell Peter about the time I was shopping with my daughter, and someone asked me, is she yours? The tone implied that dad was the last possible thing I could be. Is she yours? What the, what? Somebody said that once to me at the bookstore, and, and I couldn't even answer. Peter decided when he was 20 he wanted to have kids. After years of rejections from adoption agencies and failed surrogacies, he was almost ready to give up. And I realized, you know what? I really still am that 20-year-old who just felt that I'm supposed to be a parent. And I did it. And now I have my kids. So I ask my friend, what does fatherhood mean to him? All I can tell you is that when I say the words, I'm a dad, I feel like all of a sudden I'm like on cloud nine. Like there's nothing artificial, nothing fake, nothing 
sappy about or anything like that. It's the most natural thing I've ever felt in my entire life. So maybe being a father now is about casting aside some notion about what a father is supposed to be and just owning the experience. Or admitting that on the morning of my first day of grad school, my first day away from Izzy, I couldn't stop crying. That night I called my mom and she said, now you really know what it feels like to be a parent. That story was produced by KQED's Peter Arcuni. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. This week, Katie McMurrin is behind the board as our engineer. Victoria Maulion is our senior editor. Our team also includes David Marks, Nadine Sabai, Bianca Taylor, Polly Stryker, Julia McAvoy, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Personal Capital, offering online financial tools to manage and track accounts, from investments to retirement planning. Personal Capital, serving over 1 million people at personalcapital.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.